Hey everyone, welcome back to week three of The Wizard of Oz. I'm in my living room, not in the studio, or I'm in my kitchen actually, not in the studio this week. And just talking to you and hoping everyone's doing good. We are at book four of The Wizard of Oz, book three about Dorothy. I'm hanging out here with some cool babies. I'm not a baby! You're not a baby. Okay, you're not a baby. I'm hanging out with some cool kids. How do you feel about that? Um, a kid. Okay, you're a kid. All right, thank you so much. And that was Minnie, who's helping me uh, produce the show this week. So, do you do you like The Wizard of Oz, Minnie? I've never seen that. You've never seen The Wizard of Oz? Yeah. What's your favorite, uh, what's your favorite book? Um, uh, any book in my turquoise back? Okay, um, what books would those be? Um, do you know? Um, you know, I have the counting, um, bug one, and even I did, and even, um, it's with a ladybug, and even, on the, um, she asked all the bugs, she, she lifted at her teeth, and even all the cakes, but there was no bite, but then the bugs came! All right, Bugs came. That's pretty cool. So, how are you doing? Are you, are you having a good week, Minerva? Yeah, but and even there's, a, there's one in the, on the book rack. Yeah, there's one on the book rack? Um, which is, which is about Paw Patrol! Paw Patrol, okay. All right, so your favorite things right now are Pokemon, Paw Patrol, and Frozen? Yeah, even. Yeah, even... Power um, Rangers could have uh, tell you like Power Rangers too, okay? Cause you, Minnie, you want to be a ninja? Yeah. Yeah, you want to be a ninja. Well, there's no ninjas in the Wizard of Oz, but there is bunny slippers from BunnySlippers.com in this advertisement. Thank you so much, Minnie. Do you like the bunny slipper, bunny slippers, the fuzzy cow slippers in the front room? No, Easter was two days ago. Anyway, thank you so much for listening to Black Clock Audio Tales. <laughs> it's been an interesting week, and we all hope you're doing well, and we hope you're keeping warm, and you've got cool stuff like bunny slippers and found item clothing. Thank you so much. Remember to help support the show by going to Facebook, Instagram, uh, iTunes, Stitcher, any place that you find out about our podcast that you can tell other people about it or recommend it and rate and review. That really helps the show. And yeah, Dorothy and the Wizard. Here we go. Recording by Phil Chenever, Dorothy and the Wizard in Oz by L. Frank Baum, The Earthquake. The train from Frisco was very late. It should have arrived at Hugson Signing at midnight. But it was already five o'clock, and the gray dawn was breaking in the east when the little train slowly rumbled up to the open shed that served for the station house. As it came to a stop, the conductor called out in a loud voice, Hugson Siding! At once a little girl rose from her seat and walked to the door of the car, carrying a wicker suitcase in one hand and a round bird cage covered up with newspapers in the other, while a parasol was tucked under her arm. The conductor helped her off the car, and then the engineer started his train again, so that it puffed and groaned and moved slowly away up the track. The reason he was so late 
was because all through the night there were times when the solid earth shook and trembled under him, and the engineer was afraid that at any moment the rails might spread apart and an accident happen to his passengers, so he moved the cars slowly and with caution. The little girl stood still to watch until the train had disappeared around a curve, then she turned to see where she was. The shed at Huxon's siding was bare save for an old wooden bench and did not look very inviting. As she peered through the soft gray light, not a house of any sort was visible near the station, nor was any person in sight. But after a while the child discovered a horse and buggy standing near a group of trees a short distance away. She walked toward it and found the horse tied to a tree and standing motionless, with his head hanging down almost to the ground. It was a big horse, tall and bony, with long legs and large knees and feet. She could count his ribs easily where they showed through the skin of his body, and his head was long and seemed altogether too big for him, as if it did not fit. His tail was short and scraggly, and its harness had been broken in many places and fastened together again with cords and bits of wire. The buggy seemed almost new, for it had a shiny top and side curtains. Getting around in front so that she could look inside, the girl saw a boy curled up on the seat fast asleep. She set down the bird cage and poked the boy with her parasol. Presently he woke up, rose to a sitting position, and rubbed his eyes briskly. Uh, hello, he said, seeing her. Are you Dorothy Gale? Yes, she answered, looking gravely at his tousled hair and blinking gray eyes. Have you come to take me to Hugson's ranch? Of course, he answered. Train in? I couldn't be here if it wasn't, she said. He laughed at that, and his laugh was merry and frank. Jumping out of the buggy, he put Dorothy's suitcase under the seat and her bird cage on the floor in front. Canary birds? he asked. Oh, no, it's just Eureka, my kitten. I thought that was the best way to carry her. The boy nodded. Eureka's a funny name for a cat, he remarked. I named my kitten that because I found it, she explained. Uncle Henry says Eureka means I have found it. All right, hop in. She climbed into the buggy and he followed her. Then the boy picked up the reins, shook them, and said, Get at. The horse did not stir. Dorothy thought he just wiggled one of his drooping ears, but that was all. Get up, called the boy again. The horse stood still. And perhaps, said Dorothy, if you untied him, he would go. The boy laughed cheerfully and jumped out. Guess I'm half asleep yet, he said, untying the horse. But Jim knows his business all right, don't you, Jim? Patting the long nose of the animal. Then he got into the buggy again and took the reins and the horse at once backed away from the tree, turned slowly around, and began to trot down the sandy road, which was just visible in the dim light. "'Thought that train would never come,' observed the boy. "'I've waited at that station for five hours.' "'We had a lot of earthquakes,' said Dorothy. "'Didn't you feel the ground shake?' "'Yes, but we're used to such things in California,' he replied. "'They don't scare us much. The conductor said it was the worst quake he ever knew.' "'Did he? Then it must have happened while I was asleep,' he said thoughtfully. "'How is Uncle Henry?' she inquired, after a pause, during which the horse continued to trot with long, regular strides. "'He's pretty well. He and Uncle Hugson have been having a fine visit. "'Is Mr. Hugson your uncle?' she asked. "'Yes, Uncle Bill Hugson married your Uncle Henry's wife's sister. "'So we must be second cousins,' 
said the boy in an amused tone. I work for Uncle Bill on his ranch, and he pays me six dollars a month and my board. Isn't that a great deal? she asked doubtfully. Why, it's a great deal for Uncle Hugson, but not for me. I'm a splendid worker. I work as well as I sleep, he added with a laugh. What is your name? asked Dorothy, thinking she liked the boy's manner and the cheery tone of his voice. Not a very pretty one, he answered as if a little ashamed. My whole name is Zebediah, but folks just call me Zeb. You've been to Australia, haven't you? Yes, with Uncle Henry, she answered. We got to San Francisco a week ago, and Uncle Henry went right on to Huxon's ranch for a visit while I stayed for a few days in the city with some friends we had met. How long will you be with us? he asked. Only a day. Tomorrow Uncle Henry and I must start back for Kansas. We've been away for a long time, you know, and we're anxious to get home again. The boy flicked the big bony horse with his whip and looked thoughtful. Then he started to say something to his little companion, but before he could speak, the buggy began to sway dangerously from side to side, and the earth seemed to rise up before them. Next minute there was a roar and a sharp crash, and at her side Dorothy saw the ground open in a wide crack and then come together again. Goodness! she cried, grasping the iron rail of the seat. What was that? That was an awful big quake, replied Zeb with a white face. It almost got us that time, Dorothy. The horse had stopped and stood firm as a rock. Zeb took the reins and urged him to go, but Jim was stubborn. Then the boy cracked his whip and touched the animal's flanks with it, and after a low moan of protest, Jim stepped slowly along the road. Neither the boy nor the girl spoke again for some minutes. There was a breath of danger in the very air, and every few moments the earth would shake violently. Jim's ears were standing erect upon his head, and every muscle of his big body was tense as he trotted toward home. He was not going very fast, but on his flanks specks of foam began to appear, and at times he would tremble like a leaf. The sky had grown darker again, and the wind made queer sobbing sounds as it swept over the valley. Suddenly there was a rending, tearing sound, and the earth split into another great crack just beneath the spot where the horse was standing. With a wild neigh of terror, the animal fell bodily into the pit, drawing the buggy and its occupants after him. Dorothy grabbed hold of the buggy top, and the boy did the same. The sudden rush into space confused them so that they could not think. Blackness engulfed them on every side, and in breathless silence they waited for the fall to end and crushed them against jagged rocks, or for the earth to close in on them again and bury them forever in its dreadful depths. The horrible sensation of falling, the darkness, and the terrifying noises proved more than Dorothy could endure, and for a few moments the little girl lost consciousness. Zeb, being a boy, did not faint, but he was badly frightened, and clung to the buggy seat with a tight grip, expecting every moment would be his last. End of chapter 1 The Glass City When Dorothy recovered her senses, they were still falling, but not so fast. The top of the buggy caught the air like a parachute or an umbrella filled with wind, and held them back 
so that they floated downward with a gentle motion that was not so very disagreeable to bear. The worst thing was their terror of reaching the bottom of this great crack in the earth, and the natural fear that sudden death was about to overtake them at any moment. Crash after crash echoed far above their heads as the earth came together where it had split, and stones and chunks of clay rattled around them on every side. These they could not see, but they could feel them pelting the buggy top, and Jim screamed almost like a human being when a stone overtook him and struck his bony body. They did not really hurt the poor horse, because everything was falling together, only the stones and rubbish fell faster than the horse and buggy, which were held back by the pressure of the air, so that the terrified animal was actually more frightened than he was injured. How long this state of things continued, Dorothy could not even guess. She was so greatly bewildered. But by and by, as she stared ahead into the black chasm with a beating heart, she began to dimly see the form of the horse Jim, his head up in the air, his ears erect, and his long legs sprawling in every direction as he tumbled through space. Also turning her head, she found that she could see the boy beside her, who had until now remained as still and silent as she herself. Dorothy sighed and commenced to breathe easier. She began to realize that death was not in store for her after all, but that she had merely started upon another adventure, which promised to be just as queer and unusual as were those she had before encountered. With this thought in mind, the girl took heart and leaned her head over the side of the buggy to see where the strange light was coming from. Far below her she found six great glowing balls suspended in the air. The central and largest one was white and reminded her of the sun. Around it were arranged, like the five points of a star, the other five brilliant balls, one being rose-colored, one violet, one yellow, one blue, and one orange. This splendid group of colored suns sent rays darting in every direction, and as the horse and buggy with Dorothy and Zeb sank steadily downward and came nearer to the lights, the rays began to take on all the delicate tintings of a rainbow, growing more and more distinct every moment until all the space was brilliantly illuminated. Dorothy was too dazed to say much, but she watched one of Jim's big ears turn to violet and the other to rose, and wondered that his tail should be yellow and his body striped with blue and orange like the stripes of a zebra. Then she looked at Zeb, whose face was blue and whose hair was pink, and gave a little laugh that sounded a bit nervous. Isn't it funny? she said. The boy was startled, and his eyes were big. Dorothy had a green streak through the center of her face, where the blue and yellow lights came together, and her appearance seemed to add to his fright. I, I don't see anything funny about it, he stammered. Just then, the buggy tipped slowly over upon its side, the body of the horse tipping also. But they continued to fall all together, and the boy and girl had no difficulty in remaining upon the seat, just as they were before. Then they turned bottom side up and continued to roll slowly over until they were right side up again. 
During this time, Jim struggled frantically, all his legs kicking in the air. But on finding himself in his former position, the horse said in a relieved tone of voice, "'Well, that's better.' Dorothy and Zeb looked at one another in wonder. "'Can your horse talk?' she asked. "'Never knew him to before,' replied the boy. "'Those were the first words I ever said.' called out the horse, who had overheard them, and I can't explain why I happened to speak then. This is a nice scrape you've got me into, isn't it? As for that, we are in the same scrape ourselves, answered Dorothy, cheerfully. But never mind, something will happen pretty soon. Of course, growled the horse, and then we shall be sorry it happened. Zeb gave a shiver. All this was so terrible and unreal that he could not understand it at all, and so had good reason to be afraid. Swiftly they drew near to the flaming-colored suns and passed close beside them. The light was then so bright that it dazzled their eyes, and they covered their faces with their hands to escape being blinded. There was no heat in the colored suns, however, and after they had passed below them, the top of the buggy shut out many of the piercing rays so that the boy and girl could open their eyes again. "'We've got to come to the bottom sometime,' remarked Zeb with a deep sigh. "'We can't keep falling forever, you know.' "'Of course not,' said Dorothy. "'We are somewhere in the middle of the earth, and the chances are we'll reach the other side of it before long. But it's a big hollow, isn't it?' "'Awful big,' answered the boy." "'We're coming to something now,' announced the horse. At this they both put their heads over the side of the buggy and looked down. Yes, there was land below them, and not so very far away, either. But they were floating very, very slowly, so slowly that it could no longer be called a fall, and the children had ample time to take heart and look about them. They saw a landscape with mountains and plains, lakes and rivers, very like those upon the earth's surface, but all the scene was splendidly colored by the variegated lights from the six suns. Here and there were groups of houses that seemed to be made of clear glass because they sparkled so brightly. "'I'm sure we are in no danger,' said Dorothy in a sober voice. "'We are falling so slowly that we can't be dashed to pieces when we land.' And this country that we are coming to seems quite pretty. We'll never get home again, though, declared Zeb with a groan. Oh, I'm not so sure of that, replied the girl. But don't let us worry over such things, Zeb. We can't help ourselves just now, you know, and I've always been told it's foolish to borrow trouble. The boy became silent, having no reply to so sensible a speech and soon both were fully occupied in staring at the strange scene spread out below them. They seemed to be falling right into the middle of a big city which had many tall buildings with glass domes and sharp-pointed spires. These spires were like great spear-points, and if they tumbled upon one of them, they were likely to suffer serious injury. Jim the horse had seen these spires also, and his ears stood straight up with fear, while Dorothy and Zeb held their breaths in suspense. But, no, they floated gently down upon a broad, flat roof, and came to stop at last. When Jim felt something firm under his feet, 
The poor beast's legs trembled so much that he could hardly stand, but Zeb at once leaped out of the buggy to the roof, and he was so awkward and hasty that he kicked over Dorothy's birdcage, which rolled out upon the roof so that the bottom came off. At once a pink kitten crept out of the upset cage, sat down upon the glass roof, and yawned and blinked its round eyes. Oh, said Dorothy, that's Eureka. First time I ever saw a pink cat, said Zeb. Eureka isn't pink, she's white. It's this queer light that gives her that color. Where's my milk? asked the kitten, looking up into Dorothy's face. I'm most starved to death. Oh, Eureka, can you talk? Talk? Am I talking? Good gracious, I believe I am. Isn't it funny? asked the kitten. It's all wrong, said Zeb gravely. Animals ought not to talk, but even old Jim has been saying things since we had our accident. I can't see that it's wrong, remarked Jim in his gruff tones. At least it isn't as wrong as some other things. What's going to become of us now? I don't know, answered the boy, looking about him curiously. The houses of the city were all made of glass, so clear and transparent that one could look through the walls as easily as through a window. Dorothy saw, underneath the roof on which she stood, several rooms used for rest chambers, and even thought she could make out a number of queer forms huddled into the corners of these rooms. The roof beside them had a great hole smashed through it, and pieces of glass were lying scattered in every direction. A nearby steeple had been broken off short, and the fragments lay heaped beside it. Other buildings were cracked in places, or had corners chipped off from them, but they must have been very beautiful before these accidents had happened to mar their perfection. The rainbow tints from the colored suns fell upon the glass city softly, and gave to the buildings many delicate shifting hues which were very pretty to see. But not a sound had broken the stillness since the strangers had arrived, except that of their own voices. They began to wonder if there were no people to inhabit this magnificent city of the inner world. Suddenly a man appeared through a hole in the roof next to the one they were on, and stepped into plain view. He was not a very large man, but was well formed and had a beautiful face, calm and serene as the face of a fine portrait. His clothing fitted his form snugly and was gorgeously colored in brilliant shades of green, which varied as the sunbeams touched them, but was not wholly influenced by the solar rays. The man had taken a step or two across the glass roof before he noticed the presence of the strangers, but then he stopped abruptly. There was no expression of either fear or surprise upon his tranquil face. Yet he must have been both astonished and afraid, for after his eyes had rested upon the ungainly form of the horse for a moment, he walked rapidly to the furthest edge of the roof, his head turned back over his shoulder to gaze at the strange animal. Look out! cried Dorothy, who noticed that the beautiful man did not look where he was going. Be careful or you fall off! But he paid no attention to her warning. He reached the edge of the tall roof, stepped one foot out into the air, and walked into space as calmly as if he were on firm ground. The girl, greatly astonished, ran to lean over the edge of the roof and saw the man walking rapidly through the air toward the ground. Soon he reached the street 
and disappeared through a glass doorway into one of the glass buildings. How strange! she exclaimed, drawing a long breath. Yes, but it's a lot of fun, if it is strange, remarked the small voice of the kitten, and Dorothy turned to find her pet walking in the air a foot or so away from the edge of the roof. Come back, Eureka! she called in distress. You'll certainly be killed! I have nine lives, said the kitten, purring softly, as it walked around in a circle and then came back to the roof. But I can't lose even one of them by falling in this country, because I really couldn't manage to fall if I wanted to. Does the air bear up your weight? asked the girl. Of course, can't you see? And again the kitten wandered into the air and back to the edge of the roof. It's wonderful, said Dorothy. Suppose we let Eureka go down to the street and get someone to help us, suggested Zeb. Who had been even more amazed than Dorothy at these strange happenings. Perhaps we can walk on the air ourselves, replied the girl. Zeb drew back with a shiver. I wouldn't dare try, he said. Maybe Jim will go, continued Dorothy, looking at the horse. And maybe he won't, answered Jim. I have tumbled through the air long enough to make me contented on this roof. But we didn't tumble to the roof, said the girl. By the time we reached here, we were floating very slowly, and I'm almost sure we could float down to the street without getting hurt. Eureka walks on the air all right. Eureka weighs only about half a pound, replied the horse in a scornful tone, while I weigh about half a ton. You don't weigh as much as you ought to, Jim, remarked the girl, shaking her head as she looked at the animal. You're dreadfully skinny. Oh, well, I'm old. said the horse, hanging his head despondently. And I've had lots of trouble in my day, little one. For a good many years I drew a public cab in Chicago, and that's enough to make anyone skinny. He eats enough to get fat, I'm sure, said the boy gravely. Do I? Can you remember any breakfast that I've had today? growled Jim, as if he resented Zeb's speech. None of us has had breakfast, said the boy. And in a time of danger like this, it's foolish to talk about eating. Nothing is more dangerous than being without food, declared the horse with a sniff at the rebuke of his young master. And just at present, no one can tell whether there are any oats in this queer country or not. If there are, they are liable to be glass oats. Oh, no, exclaimed Dorothy. I can see plenty of nice gardens and fields down below us. At the edge of this city, but I wish we could find a way to get to the ground. Why don't you walk? asked Eureka. I'm as hungry as the horse is, and I want my milk. Will you try it, Zeb? asked the girl, turning to her companion. Zeb hesitated. He was still pale and frightened, for this dreadful adventure had upset him and made him nervous and worried, but he did not wish the little girl to think him a coward, so he advanced slowly to the edge of the roof. Dorothy stretched out a hand to him, and Zeb put one foot out and let it rest in the air a little over the edge of the roof. It seemed firm enough to walk upon, so he took courage and put out the other foot. Dorothy kept hold of his hand and followed him, and soon they were both walking through the air with the kitten frisking beside them. Come on, Jim, called the boy. It's all right. Jim had crept to the edge of the roof to look over, and being a sensible horse and quite experienced, 
he made up his mind that he could go where the others did. So with a snort and a neigh and a whisk of his short tail, he trotted off the roof into the air and at once began floating downward to the street. His great weight made him fall faster than the children walked, and he passed them on the way down, but when he came to the glass pavement, he alighted upon it so softly that he was not even jarred. "'Well, well,' said Dorothy, drawing a long breath. "'What a strange country this is!' People began to come out of the glass doors to look at the new arrivals, and pretty soon quite a crowd had assembled. There were men and women, but no children at all, and the folks were all beautifully formed and attractively dressed, and had wonderfully handsome faces. There was not an ugly person in all the throng, yet Dorothy was not especially pleased by the appearance of these people, because their features had no more expression than the faces of dolls. They did not smile, nor did they frown, or show either fear, or surprise, or curiosity, or friendliness. They simply stared at the strangers, paying most attention to Jim and Eureka, for they had never before seen either a horse or a cat, and the children bore an outward resemblance to themselves. Pretty soon a man joined the group who wore a glistening star in the dark hair just over his forehead. He seemed to be a person of authority, for the others pressed back to give him room. After turning his composed eyes first upon the animals and then upon the children, he said to Zeb, who was a little taller than Dorothy, "'Tell me, intruder, was it you who caused the rain of stones?' For a moment the boy did not know what he meant by this question. Then he remembered the stones that had fallen with them and passed them long before they had reached this place. He answered, "'No, sir, we didn't cause anything. It was the earthquake.' The man with the star stood for a time quietly thinking over this speech. Then he asked, "'What is an earthquake?' "'I don't know,' said Zeb, who was still confused. But Dorothy, seeing his perplexity, answered, "'It's a shaking of the earth. In this quake a big crack opened and we fell through, horse and buggy and all.' and the stones got loose and came down with us. The man with the star regarded her with his calm, expressionless eyes. "'The rain of stones has done much damage to our city,' he said, "'and we shall hold you responsible for it unless you can prove your innocence.' "'How can we do that?' asked the girl. "'That I am not prepared to say. It is your affair, not mine. You must go to the house of the sorcerer,' who will soon discover the truth. "'Where is the house of the sorcerer?' the girl inquired. "'I will lead you to it. Come.' He turned and walked down the street, and after a moment's hesitation Dorothy caught Eureka in her arms and climbed into the buggy. The boy took his seat beside her and said, "'Get up, Jim.' As the horse ambled along, drawing the buggy, the people of the glass city made way for them and formed a procession in their rear. Slowly they moved down one street and up another, turning first this way and then that, until they came to an open square in the center of which was a big glass palace, having a central dome and four tall spires on each corner. End of Chapter 2
The Arrival of the Wizard The doorway of the glass palace was quite big enough for the horse and buggy to enter, so Zeb drove straight through it, and the children found themselves in a lofty hall that was very beautiful. The people at once followed and formed a circle around the sides of the spacious room, leaving the horse and buggy and the man with the star to occupy the center of the hall. Come to us, O Gwig, called the man in a loud voice. Instantly a cloud of smoke appeared and rolled over the floor. Then it slowly spread and ascended into the dome, disclosing a strange personage seated upon a glass throne just before Jim's nose. He was formed just as were the other inhabitants of this land, and his clothing only differed from theirs in being bright yellow. But he had no hair at all, and all over his bald head and face and upon the backs of his hands grew sharp thorns like those found on the branches of rose bushes. There was even a thorn upon the tip of his nose, and he looked so funny that Dorothy laughed when she saw him. The sorcerer, hearing the laugh, looked toward the little girl with cold, cruel eyes, and his glance made her grow sober in an instant. Why have you dared to intrude your unwelcome persons into the secluded land of the Mangaboos? he asked sternly. Cause we couldn't help it, said Dorothy. Why did you wickedly and viciously send the rain of stones to crack and break our houses? he continued. We didn't, declared the girl. Prove it, cried the sorcerer. We don't have to prove it, answered Dorothy indignantly. If you had any sense at all, you'd know it was the earthquake. We only know that yesterday came a rain of stones upon us, which did much damage and injured some of our people. Today came another rain of stones, and soon after it you appeared among us. By the way, said the man with the star, looking steadily at the sorcerer, you told us yesterday that there would not be a second rain of stones. Yet one has just occurred that was even worse than the first. What is your sorcery good for if it cannot tell us the truth? My sorcery does tell the truth, declared the thorn-covered man. I said there would be but one rain of stones. This second one was a rain of people and horse and buggy, and some stones came with them. Will there be any more rains? asked the man with the star. No, my prince. Neither stones nor people? No, my prince. Are you sure? Quite sure, my prince. My sorcery tells me so. And just then a man came running into the hall and addressed the prince after making a low bow. More wonders in the air, my lord, said he. Immediately the prince and all of his people flocked out of the hall into the street, that they might see what was about to happen. Dorothy and Zeb jumped out of the buggy and ran after them, but the sorcerer remained calmly in his throne. Far up in the air was an object that looked like a balloon. It was not so high as the glowing star of the six colored suns, but was descending slowly through the air, so slowly that at first it scarcely seemed to move. The throng stood still and waited. It was all they could do, for to go away and leave that strange sight was impossible, nor could they hurry its fall in any way. The earth children were not noticed, being so near the average size of the Mangaboos, and the horse had remained in the house of the sorcerer, with Eureka curled up asleep on the seat of the buggy. 
Gradually the balloon grew bigger, which was proof that it was settling down upon the land of the Mangaboos. Dorothy was surprised to find how patient the people were, for her own little heart was beating rapidly with excitement. A balloon meant to her some other arrival from the surface of the earth, and she hoped it would be someone able to assist her and Zeb out of their difficulties. In an hour the balloon had come near enough for her to see a basket suspended below it. In two hours she could see a head looking over the side of the basket. In three hours the big balloon settled slowly into the great square in which they stood and came to rest on the glass pavement. Then a little man jumped out of the basket, took off his tall hat and bowed very gracefully to the crowd of mangaboos around him. He was quite an old little man, and his head was long and entirely bald. Why, cried Dorothy in amazement, it's Oz. The little man looked toward her and seemed as much surprised as she was, but he smiled and bowed as he answered, Yes, my dear, I am Oz the Great, the Terrible, eh? And you are little Dorothy from Kansas. I remember you very well. Who did you say it was? whispered Zeb to the girl. It's the wonderful Wizard of Oz. Haven't you heard of him? Just then the man with the star came and stood before the wizard. Sir, said he, why are you here in the land of the Mangaboos? Didn't know what land it was, my son, returned the other with a pleasant smile. And to be honest, I didn't mean to visit you when I started out. I live on top of the earth, your honor, which is far better than living inside it. But yesterday I went up in a balloon, and when I came down, I fell into a big crack in the earth caused by an earthquake. I had let so much gas out of my balloon that I could not rise again, and in a few minutes the earth closed over my head. So I continued to descend until I reached this place, and if you will show me a way to get out of it, I'll go with pleasure. Sorry to have troubled you, but it couldn't be helped. The prince had listened with attention, said he. This child, who is from the crust of the earth like yourself, called you a wizard. Is not a wizard something like a sorcerer? It's better, replied Oz promptly. One wizard is worth three sorcerers. Ah, you shall prove that, said the prince. We Mangaboos have at the present one of the most wonderful sorcerers that ever was picked from a bush. But he sometimes makes mistakes. Do you ever make mistakes? Never, declared the wizard boldly. Oh, Oz, said Dorothy, you made a lot of mistakes when you were in the marvelous land of Oz. Nonsense, said the little man, turning red, although just then a ray of violet sunlight was on his round face. Come with me, said the prince to him. I wish you to meet our sorcerer. The wizard did not like this invitation, but he could not refuse to accept it. So he followed the prince into the great domed hall, and Dorothy and Zeb came after them, while the throng of people trooped in also. There sat the thorny sorcerer in his chair of state, and when the wizard saw him he began to laugh, uttering comical little chuckles. <laughs> what an absurd creature! he exclaimed. He may look absurd, said the prince in his quiet voice, but he is an excellent sorcerer. The only fault I find with him is that he is so often wrong. 
I am never wrong, answered the sorcerer. Only a short time ago you told me there would be no more rain of stones or of people, said the prince. Well, what then? Here is another person descended from the air to prove you were wrong. One person cannot be called people, said the sorcerer. If two should come out of the sky, you might with justice say I was wrong. But unless more than this one appears, I will hold that I was right. Very clever, said the wizard, nodding his head as if pleased. I am delighted to find humbugs inside the earth just the same as on top of it. Were you ever with a circus, brother? No, said the sorcerer. You ought to join one, declared the little man seriously. I belong to Balaam and Barney's great consolidated shows, three rings in one tent, and a menagerie on the side. It's a fine aggregation, I assure you. What do you do? asked the sorcerer. I go up in a balloon, usually to draw the crowds to the circus. But I've just had the bad luck to come out of the sky, skip the solid earth, and land lower down than I intended. But never mind, it isn't everybody who gets a chance to see your land of the Gabazoos. Mangaboos, said the sorcerer, correcting him. If you are a wizard, you ought to be able to call people by their right names. Oh, I'm a wizard, you may be sure of that. Just as good a wizard as you are a sorcerer. That remains to be seen, said the other. If you are able to prove that you are better, said the prince to the little man, I will make you the chief wizard of this domain. Otherwise, what will happen otherwise? asked the wizard. I will stop you from living and forbid you to be planted, returned the prince. That does not sound especially pleasant, said the little man, looking at the one with the star uneasily. But never mind, I'll beat old Prickly all right. My name is Gwig, said the sorcerer, turning his heartless, cruel eyes upon his rival. Let me see you equal the sorcery I am about to perform. He waved a thorny hand, and at once the tinkling of bells was heard, playing sweet music. Yet look where she would, Dorothy could discover no bells at all in the great glass hall. The Mangaboo people listened, but showed no great interest. It was one of the things Gwig usually did to prove he was a sorcerer. Now was the wizard's turn, so he smiled upon the assemblage and asked, Will somebody kindly loan me a hat? No one did, because the Mangaboos did not wear hats, and Zeb had lost his somehow in his flight through the air. Ahem, <clears throat> said the wizard, will somebody please loan me a handkerchief? But they had no handkerchiefs either. Very good, remarked the wizard. I'll use my own hat if you please. Now, good people, observe me carefully. You see, there is nothing up my sleeve, and nothing concealed about my person. Also, my hat is quite empty. He took off his hat and held it upside down, shaking it briskly. Let me see it, said the sorcerer. He took the hat and examined it carefully, returning it afterward to the wizard. Now, said the little man, I will create something out of nothing. He placed the hat upon the glass floor, made a pass with his hand, and then removed the hat, 
displaying a little white piglet no bigger than a mouse, which began to run around here and there and to grunt and squeal in a tiny shrill voice. The people watched it intently, for they had never seen a pig before, big or little. The wizard reached out, caught the wee creature in his hand, and holding it between one thumb and finger and its tail between the other thumb and finger, he pulled it apart, each of the two parts becoming a whole and separate piglet in an instant. He placed one upon the floor so that it could run around, and pulled apart the other, making three piglets in all, and then one of these was pulled apart, making four piglets. The wizard continued this surprising performance until nine tiny piglets were running about at his feet, all squealing and grunting in a very comical way. Now, said the Wizard of Oz, having created something from nothing, I will make something nothing again. With this, he caught up two of the piglets and pushed them together so that the two were one. Then he caught up another piglet and pushed it into the first where it disappeared, and so one by one the nine tiny piglets were pushed together until but a single one of the creatures remained. This the wizard placed underneath his hat and made a mystic sign above it. When he removed his hat, the last piglet had disappeared entirely. The little man gave a bow to the silent throng that had watched him, and then the prince said in his cold, calm voice, You are indeed a wonderful wizard, and your powers are greater than those of my sorcerer. He will not be a wonderful wizard long, remarked Gwig. Why not? inquired the wizard. "'Because I am going to stop your breath,' was the reply. "'I perceive that you are curiously constructed, "'and that if you cannot breathe, you cannot keep alive.' "'The little man looked troubled. "'How long will it take you to stop my breath?' he asked. "'About five minutes. "'I'm going to begin now. Watch me carefully.' "'He began making queer signs and passes toward the wizard.' But the little man did not watch him long. Instead, he drew a leather case from his pocket and took from it several sharp knives, which he joined together one after another, until they made a long sword. By the time he had attached a handle to this sword, he was having much trouble to breathe, as the charm of the sorcerer was beginning to take effect. So the wizard lost no more time, but leaping forward he raised the sharp sword, whirled it once or twice around his head, and then gave a mighty stroke that cut the body of the sorcerer exactly in two. Dorothy screamed and expected to see a terrible sight, but as the two halves of the sorcerer fell apart on the floor, she saw that he had no bones or blood inside of him at all, and that the place where he was cut looked much like a sliced turnip or potato. Why, he's vegetable, cried the wizard, astonished. Of course, said the prince, we are all vegetable in this country. Are you not vegetable also? No, answered the wizard. People on top of the earth are all meat. Will your sorcerer die? Certainly, sir. He is really dead now, and will wither very quickly. "'So we must plant him at once, that other sorcerers may grow upon his bush,' continued the prince. "'What do you mean by that?' asked the little wizard, greatly puzzled. "'If you will accompany me to our public gardens,' replied the prince, 
I will explain to you much better than I can here the mysteries of our vegetable kingdom. End of chapter 3